This is episode 26 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Brian T. Harris. I think sometimes you can come to a topic in a way that you sort of have two choices. You can come at it in a way that says, here is what I know and I am on the right side of knowledge and I will tell you this knowledge and if you want to be on the right side of knowledge, you can come to me. Um, And I think another way to approach it is to say, hey, I'm learning and I have these things that I've learned and I want to share this process of learning and invite you into the space of curiosity and and humility. Um, Because I think people can carry a lot of um, sometimes subtle shame around the things that they don't know that they feel like they should or that we don't know that we feel like we should. Um, And so, you know, I really like to approach it with um, in, in the vein of, hey, how can we how can we have a, a discussion that invites you into this? And how can we open up honest questions that might be vulnerable and, you know, admit our ignorances on this? And, you know, how can I um, help you understand that I also have ignorance in this in these areas and I'm trying to learn too? You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, I talk to Brian T. Harris, who is an analytical music therapist and one of the editors of Creative Arts Therapies and the LGBTQ Community, which was recently released, I believe he said in June. So if that's the type of resource you're looking for, definitely check it out. We'll have it linked in the show notes. And our conversation... Brian and I talk about the book, his own personal experiences with uh, music therapy in a trauma setting, as well as his thoughts on disclosure and different ways that the knowledge and awareness of music therapy in the LGBTQ community is growing and will continue to grow. I'm going to ask that you bear with me in this episode. It is coughing and sneezing season, and you can probably hear I'm a little extra nasally. I've been doing my my coughing and sneezing song in all my sessions with my kiddos so that we can practice not sharing germs. If you're enjoying the podcast and feel so inclined, please leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help the podcast be more visible and get out to more people so that they can also learn from these conversations. Thank you to those who are supporting us on Patreon. It is so appreciated. And without further ado, let's get into this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Trisha. I appreciate it. How are you feeling today? 
I'm feeling okay. I'm Good. feeling all right. For the listeners, we just troubleshooted a lot of um, technical difficulties in the background. So uh, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you found music therapy? I sure will. Um, so I have been in practice since 1996, which is 23 years now. Um, I started as an undergrad when I was 17, just turned 18 years old at Illinois State University. Um, I did my internship and then practiced for six years in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and then I moved and lived for two years in uh, Mostar, Bosnia, where I ran um, the music therapy department at the Pavarotti Music Center, uh, working with kids who had trauma from the war. Um, following that, I took off a year to travel around the world and then landed in New York, where I went back to do um, my master's at NYU, uh, worked for uh, three and a half years at uh, Beth Israel Medical Center, and then um, went into full-time private practice and uh, uh, did um, teaching at NYU also. So my, my primary gigs at the moment are uh, I'm in full-time private practice in Midtown Manhattan, and then I teach for NYU, and I've done some teaching for various different other universities. I'm also part of uh, a trauma um, training organization. Um, it's Creative Arts Therapy and Trauma Postgraduate Program called the Kint Institute um, that I'm core faculty for, which is uh, something I really enjoy. That's kind of my, my general music therapy picture. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Uh, what <laughs> compelled you to go to Bosnia and what was that like? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I had been, you said you're doing contract work. Um, I had been doing contract work when I first started out. Uh, I had a couple of contracts that together compiled full-time work and one of my contracts was ending. Um, that was a couple days a week and I was just sort of scratching my head thinking, what do I want to do next? I had um, gotten into a PsyD program, uh, so a doctorate in psychology, and I was planning on leaving the field. And I um, opened up the American Music Therapy Association website page, and there was a posting for a job in Bosnia. And my first thought was, that's completely insane. I can't imagine who would take that kind of position. Um, and by the end of the day, I was um, submitting an application um, for the job. Um, I think I just, I was ready for a new opportunity. I'd done, I'd lived abroad a few times before um, and done um, various different kinds of work in human rights. I'd been involved with Amnesty International. Um, and so it sort of felt like um, the intersection of, of interests and skill sets for me at the right time. So was that your first experience with more of a, a trauma type setting? Yeah. It was. Yeah, it was. It was my first experience with a lot of things. Um, you know, I think I had a pretty, um, pretty limited exposure to the wide world of music therapy, uh, going to school in the Midwest, doing my internship in the Midwest. Um, it was a, a pretty specific lens of music therapy. Um, I'd been to one conference and to be honest, I was kind of burning out. Um, part of the reason for wanting to leave the field was just that I didn't see roads for me to develop within music therapy that were different from what I was already doing. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have supervision. Um, I was lacking, um, kind of 
nurturing in, in my development in the field. So when I moved to Bosnia, one of the best things that happened to me there was I had a clinical supervisor um, who uh, was, uh, her name is Julie Sutton, and she literally wrote the book on music therapy and trauma. It's called Music, Music Therapy and Trauma. Um, and she was my supervisor by phone at the time, because this was before sort of reliable internet connections, um, certainly in Bosnia. <laughs> and so for an hour a month, we would process my clinical work in a way that just really opened my eyes, um, both to a trauma lens on the work, but also to a more psychodynamic lens. Um, she practiced in a way that was much more psychotherapeutic than what my training had been. Um, and it was really um, both eye-opening and I'd say organic to me. I'd, I'd done plenty of my own personal therapy. I had just never really incorporated it that much with an understanding that that could be um, a part of how we talk about and think about music therapy. Um, so yeah, my, my work there was both an introduction to um, seeing things from uh, through a trauma lens, uh, but also um, through understanding more about psychodynamics and psychotherapy and music therapy. That's really interesting because uh, on your website, you have a little frequently asked questions thing. And one of them, I think, was uh -huh. something to the effect of, well, why music and not just talking? Yeah. So, yeah. Tell us how you got from <clears throat> you know thinking about leaving the field to now advocating for including music in what you were kind of going toward anyway. Yeah. Um, so. I, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like a traitor saying this on a, a music therapy um, podcast, but um, I actually, I contemplated leaving the field multiple times. Um, so yeah, I, um, I almost left the field a couple of times. I almost left the field when I came back to New York. Um, I thought about either doing a doctorate in psychology or a master's in social work. Um, because I, I still don't think I had a firm understanding of how those pieces might fit together. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, go through a master's program that was psychotherapeutically focused, but then also to have um, postgraduate trainings um, and supervision that really helped me understand that better. So I trained in, um, I did a postgraduate training in analytical music therapy and also in vocal psychotherapy. Um, both of which are um, psychodynamically informed practices of music therapy that help me really understand, you know, what is this intersection of um, verbal process and music process? And when do you, um, how do you think about when to use which? Um, or, you know, to be fair, when they intersect, because of course, words aren't necessarily exclusive from the musical process. Um, you can use um, words and music at the same time, which is, I find, one of the really powerful um, ways to to process things in, in therapy. Yeah, that makes me um, think back to when I was in college with my uh, clarinet professor. I played clarinet in college. And if I was going through a rough time, he would know five minutes into the lesson because he was like, what, what are you playing? Like, what's going on in life that's making you play your clarinet like this today? And it was he was the only one who would catch on to it every single time something was happening. Yeah. And, and so, you know, your clarinet professor probably had a very um, attuned ear to um, the intersection of your emotional state and musicality, um, which 
I would imagine felt powerful. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a really great guy. If he's out there listening, I miss you, Mr. K. <laughs> so yeah. you recently uh, released a new book with some co-authors or co-editors. Tell us about that. Yeah. yeah, so we... Um, I am a co-editor on the book Creative Arts Therapies and the LGBTQ Community Theory and Practice, uh, which came out uh, in June, just in time for Pride, um, through Jessica Kingsley. Um, that was a great project. I really enjoyed being a part of that. Um, I enjoyed the process of co-editing. Um, I en- enjoyed getting to read all of the uh, the contributors. Um, sections. You know, I think we've been, uh, in music therapy, we have been developing uh, and expanding our literature in um, in relation to LGBTQAI plus um, literature and in relation to that topic. It started at, as, to my eye at least, I think the first kind of out piece was Colin Lee about a decade ago um, wrote a piece for Voices um, outing himself, um, and I, I appreciate that. I, I think of that as one of the one of the first writings out there about anything um, related to the topic in music therapy. Um, and then Annette Whitehead Plow um, and her uh, fellow authors have have written and delved into uh, a number of things that have been great contributions. Um, and, um, at the moment, um, I, I know I'm talking about everybody else's writing, but we'll, we'll get to it because I think it's important to also talk about what, uh, what frames it, uh, Candace Bain and Maven Gumbel are co-editing, um, an issue for voices on, on queer issues specifically. Um, so there's been, it's been exciting. I think, you know, we're at a time where there has, has been some more development in this, uh, but the, the woman who um, sort of spearheaded the idea of the book, Brianna McWilliam is her name. Um, she's an art therapist who just really saw that there was there was a gap. There was there was no book out there in the creative arts therapy world yet that was looking specifically at LGBTQ um, community and issues that might relate to that. Um, and so she, you know, she started she got the ball rolling on it, just noticing that this was really something that, in my opinion, was was overdue, um, that we didn't have a compilation of writings about this in our field. Um, so that was the the origins of it. I was actually originally pulled in as uh, um, a contributing author um, and eventually um, became a, a co-editor on the book um, with my my the other three editors uh, and I were all, uh, we joined um, after Brianna had uh, kind of spearheaded it. What caused that switch from author to editor? Yeah. Um, so, and we talk about that a little bit in the book. Some of it was a, um, it was related to our different perspectives, um, both in terms of, because it's creative arts therapy wide, Um, it was, uh, when Brianna had started the editing process, she was an art therapist, which was also straight identified. Um, and so I think, you know, in her beginning process and in discussions with the authors, I think she really wanted to pull in, um, multiple viewpoints and perspectives, 
um, to kind of represent a, uh, a broader range, both of the creative arts therapies and of orientation. Um, so she pulled in three um, queer identified uh, authors who were represented uh, drama therapy and music therapy. So we had three uh, creative arts therapies and sort of multiple identities representing um, the editing process. And I think that that made the editing process richer um, because again, we had, we had different perspectives. We looked at things from, from different angles and it was interesting to see um, even across modality, the, the things that people would look at and pick up on as editors um, based on uh, what their modality might emphasize more or how they see things. Um, you know, as a music therapist, I, anybody of course, who's writing about anything related to sound or music, I'm going to have uh, probably a particularly attuned and critical eye to it, but I might not think as much about what's included in regards to imagery, um, those kinds of pieces. So that was interesting. Yeah, that's really admirable that as a collective, there was so much attention to the different perspectives and the detail of your modality and also your identification. And that alone, finding the people to do that must have taken a lot of time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think we also try to be one of the things I would say is my approach to it or how I how I tried to approach it and how I think we all tried to approach it is with a lot of humility, um, understanding that we are always going to be preferencing certain voices. There will be voices that are left out of the book. Um, and we know that already. Um, and, you know, and also that there's so much to learn. Um, it is a, an ever-growing and changing topic. I think particularly around trans and, and um, non-binary uh, communities, there's so much that's growing and changing at the moment um, that it can, be, um, it can be hard to keep up pace um, and really um, kind of understand the complexities of how, how identities are shaping and developing. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that we wanted to foster was um, this real sense of, of invite people into a sense of curiosity and humility in relation to the topic. Um, I think sometimes you can, you know, I, I very much identify as a feminist as well. And I think sometimes you can come to a topic in a way that you sort of have two choices. You can come at it in a way that says, here is what I know, and I am on the right side of knowledge, and I will tell you this knowledge. And if you want to be on the right side of knowledge, you can come to me. Um, and I think another way to approach it is to say, Hey, I'm learning and I have these things that I've learned and I want to share this process of learning and invite you into the space of curiosity and, and humility. Um, because I think people can carry a lot of, um, sometimes subtle shame around the things that they don't know that they feel like they should, or that we don't know that we feel like we should. Um, and so, you know, I really like to approach it with, um, in, in the vein of, Hey, how can we, how can we have a, a discussion that invites you into this? And how can we open up honest questions that might be vulnerable and, you know, admit our ignorances on this? And, you know, how can I, um, help you understand that I also have ignorance in this, in these areas and I'm trying to learn too. Yeah, yeah, humility is a great word for that, especially as a, a, profes a professional and being the person, a part of creating this book, which is a resource for someone else. So to also say like, hey, this is a resource, but also it's still evolving. 
you know, this is not this is not necessarily all that we know or all that is known. Right. It's it is a you know, it is a specific compilation of some of the things that we have experience in at this particular moment. Um, and we hope that it will, you know, help contribute to where the conversation is now and help move that conversation forward and fill it out and make it richer and broader. Um, but it's by no means a complete um, representation of all of the voices within the, the LGBTQAI community at the moment. I envision it becoming like a, a volume type thing where every few years you'll have a completely different volume with different perspectives. <laughs> <laughs> we hope the same thing. Yeah, we we hope that in, in a few years there will be um, another edition or another volume where we can kind of continue to see the, the evolving voices. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that being said, I think there's some really there's some great voices in inside the book and some some really exciting things that are are explored. Um, yeah. Awesome. What are some things you learned along the way through the process? Uh, there's a, there's a chapter in there, um, that I helped edit, which is about working within, um, Hasidic communities or Orthodox Jewish communities. Um, I found that one fascinating and, and a voice that I really hadn't heard from before, um, just about what it might be like to be gay within a very, um, traditional conservative religious community. Um, I'd sort of thought about some of those things, but not so much um, the specific uh, voice of what it might be like within um, Orthodox Jewish communities. That one, uh, I think, was fascinating to me. Um, there's a chapter that looks back on what it was like to do art therapy in the height of the AIDS crisis in New York, um, which was also very moving. Um, just, you know, it it was... Um, a little bit of a, a time capsule, not in terms of the work. I mean, I think the work can translates to modern times, but just in terms of um, how critical and, and traumatic that era was and, and what it was like to be a, a clinician working at that time um, when a lot of folks um, wouldn't work with people who, who, were, um, who actively had been diagnosed with AIDS. Um, so that one was fascinating to me. Um, there's a lot on intersectionality in the book, um, which was great. I think, you know, that's a terminology that, it, that has emerged more recently that explains a lot of conversations and a lot of ideas that, um, I've been having for many, many years, but I think it puts it more succinctly talking about how all of, you know, pieces of race and class and gender, um, play into, um, you know, the specifics of, of the topic of the book. Um, so I thought those were really rich contributions that I learned a lot from, too. Yeah. Wow. What complexities. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, my own chapter looked at um, coming out. Um, I looked at um, sort of encouraging clinicians to consider how and when they they come out in sessions. Um, and I really meant that across the span of orientations um, and, you know, uh, probably to a less clear degree, um, including uh, gender identity. But I was I was approaching it as as a queer man. So looking a little bit more at, at sexual orientation, um, looking at how we disclose things um, in our sessions. What do our clients know about us and kind of beginning from the process of 
Um, if we think that we're not disclosing things, then we're already sort of wrong about that. We're always disclosing certain things. Um, when I walk into a session, I'm generally disclosing my um, my race, my my gender expression, my my height, my um, you know any number of different things that um, people might at least assume about me based on on how I look. Um, and often we say things subtly that will disclose other aspects of our identity. And so what I'm encouraging is for for everybody to think about how and when they disclose, um, not just people who identify with uh, a minority sexual orientation, um, but to really um, think about that a bit more critically and what it might mean to, um, to disclose uh, a sexual orientation um, as part of a therapeutic process. Um, and one of the first pieces I start with actually was my early contract work with um, people with Alzheimer's. Um, and this was, you know, in the Midwest in the 90s. And even though I had come out of, you know, I was a little um, queer feminist activist in college, moving into my early um, my early clinical work, I just sort of assumed that I, I couldn't come out to older folks. Um, you know, that was, I just assumed that that would not be in any way therapeutically relevant. But I had an experience where one of my clients um, who had been close with passed away. And after she died, I learned that she was a lesbian. Um, and I thought, you know, I wonder what difference it would have made if she had known um, how I identify or if, if I'd been more open or more created an environment where she might have felt like she could be out. Um, and it was the first time I started to question that that assumption that I should, you know, sort of categorically avoid any kind of disclosure of my own sexual orientation. Um, and then I give a lot of other clinical examples throughout time, um, throughout my practice of when I disclose and don't. But. Interesting. Um, so I'll, I'll share a story and then you can tell me what your thoughts are, I guess, on this. So sure. I, for the listeners, in case you haven't heard me say this in the past, I have very short hair and I got a haircut last week and I had a couple clients this week. I work with mainly kiddos um, mention your hair is different. Yeah. And then they would say something to the effect of, are you a boy or a girl? And mm -hmm. I would respond, I'm a girl. Girls can have short hair. You know, that's OK. Blah, blah, blah. And I usually don't go more into it than that because that's not what we're working on. Um, but just kind of be like those the subtle I don't know if advocacy is the right word, but just a way to normalize that there are lots of differences. Yeah. Yeah. And that those questions, um, you know, sometimes we hear those questions as if someone is trying about to um, make fun of us um, or, you know, try and, I don't know, say something degrading. But sometimes, particularly with kids, they may be questions that are like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about how I express myself and what it means for me if I have short hair, if I have long hair, or if I do this thing which is more typically feminine as a boy, or, you know, what's what's the range that I have? Um, and so I wonder, I don't, you know, I don't know the, the folks who you're working with, I don't know the goals, but I wonder if there's any way to weave that back into, you know, what the question is and why they might be curious about it and what comes up for them about looking like a boy or looking like a girl or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That gives me some validation that like those kinds of things can and should be explored, even if that's not the IEP goal <laughs> per se. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's 
I, I tend to work on my work is, um, you know, self-referring, uh, primarily adult psychotherapeutic. So my, my goals can be broader based, but even when I think we're looking at, you know, sort of specific IEP goals, we're still working with humans. Um, and we're, we're still working on all of these the sort of like larger human capacities. And sometimes I think the, um, the development of the trust and the relationship and the pieces that are, um, may seem peripheral to that specific goal can be just as important in the development of the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, well said. Do you have any other advice or tips for those of us who aren't necessarily working on those things specifically, or maybe are, just anything that you would say in general, other than disclosure, which you covered? Um, yeah, I think, you know, um, expanding your exposure um, is great. Get yourself out there and talking to other folks of um, other, you know, and this, this isn't just orientations or gender identities. Like I think expanding who you are exposed to in general um, is always healthy, um, is always healthy for um, who we are as people, but also who we are as clinicians. Um, and, you know, find uh, resources out there, if, if we're talking specifically LGBTQAI, um, find resources out there where you feel safe and comfortable um, exploring the things that you don't know. Um, allow yourself to, you know, admit the things that you're not particularly comfortable with and find ways to start exploring those a bit more. We're doing, um, there's uh, an expressive therapy summit uh, that's happening here in, in New York City in a month, it's happening uh, almost exactly a month from now, and I'm, uh, I'm facilitating a day-long um, symposium on uh, specifically on this as well. So we've got um, uh, a couple of music therapists, we have uh, an art therapist, a psychodramatist, uh, a variety of orientations and gender identities um, of the folks who are presenting. And I think it's it's going to be a really rich day. But it, again, it's it's the same kind of idea. What we're really hoping to do is invite people into that conversation where we can um, use uh, creative modalities to help them explore um, the experiences of people with different kinds of identities, uh, where we can use conversation um, and, and be engaging in those questions, um, you know, rather than uh, one of the things I said when we when we met together as, as, as our team, I don't want it to be the kind of day where we just kind of give people information that we want them to take in. I want people to be actively involved in these questions and feel like it's a safe enough space to start exploring things that they may not know. What an expressive arts approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I love I love a good multimodal um, and and really um, creative approach to whatever topic we're working on. I think you know, we are, as creative arts therapists, we, we have these powerful tools um, that we can um, make use of in teaching and supervision and training. Um, and I think we sort of have an obligation to make use of those tools. Well said, well said. Do you have anything you want to add to that before we move into the rapid fire questions? Oh, rapid fire questions. Uh, I think I'm ready for rapid fire. Awesome. I'm a little nervous at that, that the, it, oh. it feels, uh, 
I, I noticed my adrenaline going up at the idea of a rapid fire. So let me try again. Go ahead. Uh, are you ready for the questions I ask all the guests at the end? <laughs> Is that less intimidating? I think I'm ready. Awesome. It's, so, it's a little less intimidating. I think I'm ready. <laughs> the questions are short, but your answers don't have to be. The first is a little okay. warm up. Coffee okay. or tea? Tea. I am the kind of person who, if I drink coffee, I will be too jittery and um, probably less focused. So tea. Early bird or night owl? Well, I have a two-year-old, um, so I am now an early bird um, by virtue of having to get up with my two-year-old. Yeah. Something you would tell your younger self. Mm, I love that. Something along the lines of chill out and have more faith in yourself. You'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I want that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Your music therapy elevator speech. Mm. Well, mine is usually specific because I identify as a music psychotherapist. Um, so, you know, the next question is always, what does that mean? And the way I usually say it is that um, I use music as one of the primary tools in a psychotherapeutic process. Um, so that's sort of, it's specific to me, but not necessarily the broader world of music therapy because we don't all practice psychotherapeutically. Um, but that's, that's my most condensed version, but I have various different elevator pitches depending on, um, on what area I might be talking about. So for example, with trauma, I would introduce it a little bit differently than I would with Alzheimer's, which is also an area I've worked on for years. So it can vary, but that's probably the most succinct. Yeah. Your favorite self-care practice? Mm. It can be more than one. Yeah. I love a good hike. Someplace where I get literal perspective, um, where I, if I can, uh, go someplace where I'm, I'm up above everything else. Um, I love that as self-care because it helps remind me how not important I am in the larger scheme of things. And I always find that um, humbling and refreshing and grounding. Um, so I'm going to go with that. Yeah, well said. Something that is currently adding value to your life. Mm, being a parent, definitely. Uh, it is one of the richest experiences I've been afforded. I'm incredibly grateful for that, especially, um, I'm, I'm going to take a little time with this one, um, especially as, um, as a, a gay man or queer man. Um, it's not something that I ever thought that I would get to do. Um, and so being able to be, I have a life that's, um, I have a life that is somewhat heteronormative in its outlook. I have um, a husband and child now living um, in the suburbs just north of New York City. Um, but it's it um, to me is somewhat radical just in that it's not a life that I ever would have envisioned. Um, but being a parent is, is an incredibly rich and rewarding process that I'm really grateful for. Yeah, and how beautiful that you didn't necessarily envision it, but 
over time, it has become a possibility. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the the topic of the book, it's, it's through, um, you know, I have to look back and really give a lot of credit to um, like the ACT UP movement in the 80s, which catapulted um, queer rights forward. Um, without that, we would never be where we are now. Um, I would not be married. I would most likely not have a child. And so looking back um, at kind of um, my my elders, um, as it were, um, at the the advocacy and the education um, that that's been done that's allowed me to have the kind of life that I have. Uh, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful for that. And in a couple of decades, people will be saying the same thing about you and your book and all the work <laughs> you're doing. So. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. I hope to be a part of that. You are. Your favorite song or intervention to use in a session? I guess this one might be a little different for you, but. Yeah. Um, it probably is different for me because it depends so much on the person who's in front of me. Um, but I would say that my favorite experiences are ones where um, you find yourself um, just in this kind of deep attunement with a client. Um, and when that can happen in the music, I think it's incredibly powerful. So whatever it is, if it's uh, a vocal improvisation or, um, you know, it could even be a, a song that one or the other is, is, is playing, but just this, this deep sense of presence and attunement, I find those the most rewarding. Yeah. And the last one is where can people find you and connect with you? Sure. Um, you can find me at uh, my website, which is briantharris.org, uh, B-R-I-A-N-T as in Timothy, H-A-R-R-I-S.org. Um, and through various other websites, I guess. I'm also involved with NYU and the Kinth Institute um, uh, and uh, analytical music therapy. Um, we just formed an international association for analytical music therapy, and I'm the, the president of that board as well. So wow. one of many areas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that before you wrap up? Sure. So we're actually um, we're kicking off um, – a an issue of um um i think it's okay to talk about this i hope so um <laughs> you don't have to we're gonna, don't want to uh, no no it's okay uh we're we're about to send out the the call for papers uh, we're going to be guest editing um a couple of colleagues of mine and i um uh, an issue for the nordic journal on analytical music therapy um and so that was uh started by Mary Priestley back in the 70s and furthered by a woman named Benedict Skybe who um, just passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, but in uh, before her death, she trained a number of us in analytical music therapy. And so we've come together and have been um, working on um, just taking a look at how we, we further that too, because it's a very um, powerful approach uh, to music therapy. Yeah. That we want to see brought into the future. Yeah. What a legacy to continue. Great. Yeah. It's again, it's, it's humbling to look at um, what's been done in analytical music therapy and kind of where we are and to try and um, I think 
you know, be the stewards of carrying that forward, trying to figure out what that looks like. Yeah. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing all that. Great. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me and for troubleshooting all the technical difficulties today. I know our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian. I know I learned a lot and have some more ideas and resources for how to be more LGBTQ conscious, I guess, in my sessions. And also, like I said in this conversation, a little bit of validation for the subtle ways we can incorporate that awareness in our sessions with clients who don't necessarily have those goals at this time. If you are looking for a way to support the podcast, please check out our Patreon page and consider uh, becoming a patron. You can choose to donate whatever amount you're comfortable with per month, and you will have the exclusive opportunities to ask guest questions. So when I schedule an interview, like I did today with Brian, you can head over to Patreon and see who is scheduled, and if there are any questions you want to ask them, you can do so right there. If you or someone you know is interested in being on the podcast, please shoot an email over to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. You can also check out our Facebook page and our Instagram account if you're looking for more resources, want to share some kind words. Everyone is so nice over there on social media. Or you just want to connect with some other people who are also enjoying the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, and I'll see you in the next one. Mm